Hey friends, good to see you this morning. Glad you're here with us at ANV. Uh, we're going to be continuing continuing in our established series that we started uh, last week. And what this is, is it's going to be a 31-week series kind of going through the whole Bible. And why we decided to do that is because it sort of coincides uh, with a bit of a launch of, of a tool that we've had for a long time, but now it's in new app form, and we just call it Establish. And it's a 31-day devotional uh, for new believers. Uh, uh, you can kind of take people through that if you lead them to Christ. And we're really excited about that tool. And we love the content so much as we were kind of <laughs> building the app. It's like, this would make a great series. And then it also, we were touching on the content as well here on Sundays. And really believing that uh, lots of different small groups and uh, are, are going to be happening. And different uh, pairs of people going through scripture together. So we thought Sundays could support that well uh, if we were touching on those topics here together. So... It's week two in Established, and we're going to be, the title of the sermon is Mistrust, Mistrusting God, not a how-to on how to mistrust God, hopefully the opposite, but we're going to be going through um, uh, Adam and Eve and the fall uh, in Genesis 3. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to remind you about what we talked about last week, and the title of that sermon was Created for Relationship, and we talked about how God made the world for a very specific purpose, to dwell with man and to be close to him and to be near him, and really the point of creation is relationship uh, with God and with others. And what I think is interesting about that is that uh, we don't actually get to decide that. That He decided that for us. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I often like to pretend that the point of my life is subjective and I kind of get to pick some stuff and I'll do that over here and do that over there. But that's not really true. Um, God decided what <laughs> this whole, what all of this is about. And uh, we get, either get to participate that, participate in that or not. And last week we talked about a few of the ways in which we could not participate the first would be disobedience, just going, no, I'm not really into that whole relationship idea and just kind of rejecting it entirely. Uh, the next one would be discouraged. You know, I've tried the relationship thing, but it's so hard and it's so painful and I'm discouraged about that. And I, I don't really want to keep trying. This is too difficult. Or we could just be distracted by the things of life and go, ah, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to pursue some other shinier things uh, than relationships. And maybe relationships will come and go. They might take the priority sometimes, but mostly I feel distracted with whatever else the world has to offer. And there is a lot of other things going on besides relationships or, or seemingly so in this world. Uh, what I was reminded of uh, last uh, last week is a story that, uh, that my parents tell about me when I was a kid. Just It came to mind as we were talking about, you know, the point of all of this. And uh, do we get to decide that, you know? And, and, and there's a bit of a trajectory that's set out for us by God. And we can't really pick what the point of all this is, even though we'd like to think we can. And it reminded me of a story of when I was a kid of uh, the log ride. I think it was at the PNE. And so as the story goes, I'm four years old and my parents take me on the long ride, uh, on the log ride. And, you know, you can't really see what the log ride's all about in the line. You kind of just, you see a couple of families going by and some nice logs and a nice float, but you don't really know that there's a big drop at the end of it all, or at least I didn't. And so you're kind of going through this nice log ride and, and halfway through, if you've been on the log ride, there's like a smaller dip in kind of preparation for the big one. And after that smaller dip, I, we go down that, I see that. And by that time, you can, you're in plain view of the big one that's coming. So I decide, <laughs> as the story goes, I decide halfway through the log ride that like I start undoing my seatbelt and going, this is not, I didn't sign up for this. Like I'm getting out of this. And my parents trying to explain, going, ah, that's not how this works. Like, you're in for it now. We are going off that drop, and you kind of know you've made your decision. <laughs> There's a, This is not subjective anymore. Uh, the choice has been made. And so I, I kind of thought about that last week, going, I think that's a lot like this life, as, as, as God is actually, he's decided where this thing is going. And the story is in lots of ways written, and uh, we either get to participate that, in that or not. 
So the fall, the Adam and Eve story, is sort of the first deviation from what God intended. If the world is created for relationship, and sin is whatever breaks relationship, then sin being introduced into the world is the first deviation from the whole point. So that's why it's really worth exploring. So um, if the point of the whole world and your and mine existence uh, is to be in relationship with God and others, I think it would be important to know how do we measure that? What is, our, what is the success criteria of relationship? How would you measure how well you're doing, if that's even something we're supposed to do, but how would you measure how well you're doing given the objective, given a relational objective for all of life? Uh, another way of asking that question is how do you measure how well your relationships are going? How do you measure the depth of them and the intimacy of them all? Um, and a word, I, uh, the way that I find the most helpful word to use if I ever want to measure relationships, which is kind of a weird thing to measure in general, uh, granted, but the word I'd like to use is, is trust. And there's kind of a sliding scale of all the people that you know in your life. And you, this person that you just met yesterday at the grocery store, you don't trust very much because you don't know them very well. And then you have your spouse or someone else way over on the other side of someone that you trust entirely. And there's kind of a bit of a sliding scale and, you know, if you draw a line arbitrarily somewhere over here, these people you wouldn't trust to take your car for a ride and these people you would give your keys of your car to. And so uh, trust becomes a really interesting metric for how close you are with someone, how well you know them. Uh, so we can kind of draw a conclusion from that, it's just sort of basic idea, is that trust and relationship are inextricable. So it's kind of easy to see in human relationships how, you know, there's a sliding scale of trust and uh, to, to, the, to the degree to which we trust someone is the degree to which we know them and are close to them. But the same is actually true for God. The more we trust him, uh, the closer we are to him. Uh, and I, I'd, like to, I'd like to compare trust to, uh, just for, the, for, the, for our purposes this morning, I'd like, to, I'd like you to see trust as, uh, as light, this morning. And I'll tell you why I find that as a helpful sort of way of viewing it, just because it's th th that, that comparison will help us as we unpack the Adam and Eve story. But trust and light are related to me, are related to me because the more you trust people, the more vulnerable things are, the more you're seen and the more you see. And light is a metaphor that's used for, for uh, in, in scripture all the time for like knowing people and being known. It's, it's light. It, it lights up darkness. It's being seen. It's being vulnerable. It's being exposed. It's, uh, it's kind of scary. And trust is scary. Vulnerability is scary. And so as you think about this concept of trust this morning, also think it about, also th think of it in terms of light and darkness. Think of it in terms of, uh, if you weren't to trust someone, it's almost as though you're living in a bit of a shadow with them. Uh, and if you were to trust someone, it's almost like you're letting more light shine in your heart. So that's just a kind of a helpful way of viewing trust this morning. There's a lots of ways to view trust, but that would be a handy one this morning. So Genesis 3 is the story of the fall. We're going to read that. And it's the story of the first time that darkness fell, so to speak. It's the first time a shadow was cast over humanity. It's the first time humanity hid from God which is to say the first time that humanity didn't trust God or let his light shine everywhere. So it's a, it's a tragic story. So let's read it. This is Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? 
Of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the sermon replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Father, we thank you for this timeless story, and thank you for the timeless truths that are in it. And I pray that you would teach us something fresh this morning about your heart for relationship and your heart to want to be close to us and your desire to know where we are, your desire uh, for us to trust you and to walk in the light. And so I ask that you would speak to us clearly this morning as we look at this scripture together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through uh, the story, um, sort of some key parts from it. And what I'd like to do is correlate it to the same journey that we go on as we try to trust God. Because I think we can put ourselves in the story in really obvious ways. And so I'd like to read this through, uh, highlight some key points, and then correlate it to how maybe we would respond and, and how this plays out in our lives. Uh, sort of a step-by-step process on he, how we would wind up hiding from God. <laughs> a, a bit of a how-to on how to uh, have God ask the question, where are you? If that makes sense. Uh, not that that's the goal, but this is what happened in the story. And we find ourselves, I think, a lot of the time with God kind of going, where are you? And so let's unpack this and see if we can't see ourselves in it and uh, interject the gospel into the places that it needs to be inserted so that we walk in the light and we're close to him and we trust him and are living out the goal of why God created the world. So first place I want to highlight, the first step in uh, being distant from God, so to speak, is in verse 4. And the first thing that happens is the enemy lies. The enemy lies to us. In this particular story, uh, the enemy says, the serpent says, you can be like God. Now, uh, what is a helpful thing to know about the enemy's lies, whether it's to Adam and Eve or to you and I, the enemy has a lot of different lies and he has no problem lying and he's extremely creative with them and there's no end to the, to the cunningness and breadth of the lies that he can say. But I'll tell you what the, what the motivation of his lies are to you and me and to Adam and Eve. Is, is, it's to deceive us in such a way that produces a mistrust of God. Now, in this story, uh, the serpent says, you can be like God. You can be a better God than God. You can be, um, you, well, you can be like God is the lie. Now, that's a lie, and it's appealing uh, to humanity by saying, I want to know the knowledge of good and evil, and I want to be like God, and all these sorts of things. And the lie is, you can be a better God than God. Uh, but you see how the goal of the enemy here is to place a seed of doubt 
in the supremacy and authority of who God is. And what's handy about that is now there's just a million ripple effects after that seed of doubt is, is, is placed. Uh, do you notice how the, 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 the serpent doesn't say you should eat the fruit anyway? He's not trying to get Adam and Eve to sin so much as his goal is to plant a seed of doubt in, uh, in God being in charge. Because if he can do that, well, sin becomes a natural byproduct because we're now in charge and we're left to our own devices and authority of what suits us best. And, well, the fruit's awfully shiny. So, but it starts with a seed of doubt. Now, that's important to know because you and I get lied to all the time. And uh, I, I kind of used to think, maybe this is a childish thought, but I used to think that the enemy was trying to get me to sin all the time because the more I sinned, the sadder God was because it's yucky stuff. And the yuckier I am, the more, the more sad God is. <laughs> I'm sure there's some truth to that, but that, that's, that's not really what's going on. Uh, I don't think the enemy's trying to get us to sin so much as he's trying to just get us to doubt God in any way. And then sin becomes a natural byproduct of us not having our ultimate trust in the person who is designed to have the ultimate trust and authority in our lives. <clears throat> so uh, there's, a, there's a great C.S. Lewis quote. If you've heard me preach before, I like to work these in. I just think he's a genius. And he always has some handy thing to say. Um, and so this is uh, from the Screwtape Letters, a book that C.S. Lewis wrote. And it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a funny book because it, obviously it's fiction. It's, it's, a, it's a senior demon writing advice to a junior demon on how to mess with us. Uh, they call humanity their patients or mortals. And it's very clever writing because it's, it's how the enemy tricks us and tempts us and gets us to doubt and all these sorts of things. So this is, what the, this is what the demon's advice is to the other demon. He says, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. I think that's so fascinating. That the enemy's goal is actually to place a doubt in our mind of how loving and good and trustworthy God is. We like to picture the enemies as going, you know, the, the, the classic devil on the shoulder in the Looney Tunes being like, do bad things. When really... The enemy is trying to keep God's goodness and trustworthiness and love out of our hearts. And that's best done by doubt. And then sin seems to kind of take care of itself <clears throat> once we no longer have the supremacy of Christ in our hearts. So I want to give you an example of a lie that I often hear. And I hear, I hear other people saying that this is a lie they hear a lot too. And maybe it's just common in our culture or, or, or whatever. But I wanted to just pick a lie that you and I could run with uh, as a way to sort of an example of, of how the enemy does this in our lives. And the lie that I often hear, maybe you can resonate with me in this one, is, is this. Uh, you won't be loved if you are known. The enemy says that to me a lot. The enemy says, the enemy says don't expose yourself because if you do, you will be, uh, you'll be in trouble you will be less. You won't be loved. Uh, don't expose yourself. Don't show people who you really are. Don't let yourself be broken in front of others. Because if you do, everyone will think you're ugly, including God. Maybe especially God. And it's a very clever lie that he tells me because the immediate repercussions of that is that light is bad. Light and trust are enemies of this lie. 
The problem is, is that this lie is actually kind of attractive sometimes. Unfortunately, uh, exposure isn't fun. <laughs> exposure has negative, has negative repercussions. It's an uncomfortable feeling to feel exposed. Uh, and the devil is so clever because he pitches himself to me as a liberator from exposure. He pitches himself to me as the savior of my vulnerability. He'll save me from needing to be vulnerable. The enemy will. The enemy will encourage me all the time to not walk in the light, to not trust God's forgiveness, to not trust other people's forgiveness of me. Um, he will sell me darkness. The enemy will sell me distance and darkness. And I'd like, it's so attractive. And it makes a ton of sense a lot of the time. So that's the lie that he would say, is if you're seen, you won't be loved. Now that is 100% antithetical to the entire gospel, right? And so just like the Adam and Eve story, the enemy just says 100% untrue thing. We cannot be like God. And he says, you can be like God. Uh, you know, God says, you'll die if you eat this. And the enemy says, no, you won't. It's 100% opposite. And, and in, in my case, with the lie that the enemy tells me all the time, he says, you won't be loved if you're known. And that's literally the opposite of, of everything Jesus came to say and deliver us from. Is I, while you were yet sinners, I died for you. It's, it couldn't be more opposite. And yet it's so attractive to me. And he sells me darkness. And I buy it more often than I'd like to admit. And that's kind of the next step, isn't it, in this story? In verse 6, uh, I like that I read from the NLT this morning uh, because it, it has this one sentence the other translations don't. And it says, uh, you know, she was convinced. Eve was convinced. <laughs> and we believe the lie. That's step two. Step two in how to be distant from God is to believe that lie. So if I was to believe the lie that uh, if I'm loved, I'm not known. Uh, if, if I'm known, I won't be loved. Then... Me believing the lie looks like going, I can't trust the light. I can't trust, ex I can't trust being exposed. I can't trust God's love to meet me in the depths of my sin. I can't trust God's love to meet me in the darkest corners of places. And so here's what, it, here's what believing the lie looks like for me. It looks like constantly pivoting to not quite be in the light and to, rem and to keep just a little part of myself in the shadows. And if you're like me and you can get good at this, if you live in Christian community and you got to be a part of a million small groups or something, you get really good, or at least I have, at never quite showing your whole heart, at least the parts that scare you. I'll be honest and I'll be transparent and I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll model vulnerability and all those sorts of things. But I'm st I still know there's pieces of my heart that are unwilling to be exposed uh, because I'm still believing and operating out of the lie that the gospel can't meet me in the fullness of who I am. And this is quite sinister because what it builds inside of me and perhaps inside of you is a knee-jerk reaction to resist light. And it becomes the first thing we turn to is to resist the light and go, oh, no, 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 the light is dangerous. The truth, exposure is dangerous. And we start to operate out of these lies the light becomes threatening. Now this is success for the enemy. If he can get us to see the light as a threat to our safety, 
and to the things that we befriended, like the darkness, then uh, God's very presence becomes a threat to us. Scripture says that he is light. There is no darkness in him. We're going to get there in a minute. Uh, and now God's very presence is a threat to our safety mechanisms. And the lies we've believed and the lies we've operated out of and adopted, their, their immediate byproduct is a resistance to God's character. Now, this is success for the enemy because his goal, again, is to be 100% opposite to the point of life, which is to be in relationship with God. And so what better tactic than to have God's presence become dangerous to us and a threat? And you see how little this is about getting us to sin, so much as it's about getting us to need and want and befriend darkness and distance from our creator, just like him, just like the enemy. So step three is to befriend the dark, is to need the dark and to crave the dark and want the dark. In verse eight, it says, they hid from the Lord among the trees when he was walking. It became their knee-jerk reaction to go, I need fig leaves, I need to cover myself, and I'm going to go hide in the trees as soon as the Lord approaches. So here's a, here's a question I want to ask you. <clears throat> what if what breaks God's heart isn't so much our sin as much as it is our affection for the darkness? What if it's not so much our acts of sin and the, and the things that are shameful that we do that are what break his heart? so much as our need to run and not trust in the fullness of what he's already accomplished to set us free from those acts and those things we've done wrong. What if the tragedy isn't the moments of sin, it's a belief that the gospel can't win over them? That breaks God's heart. That, I believe, is what is the true tragedy. I don't, want to, I don't want to belittle sin. But sin is the logical byproduct of our mistrust of God. And so Jesus comes along and goes, what if I pay for all of that so that we can be close? Uh, one of the most tragic sentences, I've said this before in sermons, but the, one of the most tragic sentences in the whole Bible, in my opinion, is here in verse 8. And I'll read it again. When God says, where are you? Says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Uh, coming back to the point of the whole series and all of life, <laughs> it's the goal is to be in relationship. I can't imagine a more tragic moment than for God to walk into the garden, and to not find the people that he loves. And the results of believing lies and then operating out of them is befriending the darkness and hiding. And that, to me, is the real tragedy. I think the enemy would long to, make our, to highlight our sin as the problem. He does this to me, where he says, look at all these sins you've committed and see how ugly they are. There's no way you could be loved for those things. And then I go, yeah, they really are bad. And yeah, it really does make sense to live in the dark. And yeah, I really couldn't tell anybody about that. And yeah, no, I, there's no way I'd be loved for this thing. And the enemy's constantly trying to get us to think about our sinful, shameful acts. 
Uh, instead of what I believe is the real problem is our pride and our rejection of the truth that's designed to meet those things. Because it's convenient for me to highlight the extremity of my sin because then I get to justify my distance and my safety and my comfort in the darkness. It actually becomes a handy thing to think our sin is really, really bad and to say and to, and to paint us ourselves in a worse light. What's scarier is to go, the gospel, I think, meets that and that and that and that and all my sin and pays for all of it. And the humility and, pro- and, and, and the death of self and pride it takes to go, what if my real problem is I'm in charge of my life? What if my, what if my me needing to be the authority <laughs> is what really needs to die? What if my pride needs to die? What if my self-deception needs to die? Self-deception, I believe, is evil. Operating out of those lies is really what is evil because it flies directly in the face of God's authority. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy for us to expose ourselves? Is he trustworthy to not condemn us in being seen. I want to read 1 John in chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So you know what this kind of makes me think of? Is that, it's kind of a weird sentence to say out loud, but sin isn't the problem. There's there's purification for that in Jesus' blood. That's done. Sin actually is not the problem. Deception and walking in darkness is a different story befriending the darkness, having an affection for what the enemy sells us as a, as a defense mechanism against being known by the one who loves us most, that's a problem. Jesus comes along and goes, I'm going to pay for all of those things so that we can be close. And then even in that moment to continue to walk in darkness and go, I don't want that. I don't want you. I want darkness. I want shelter. I want to hide. That breaks God's heart. And it flies directly in the face of why he created you and me. And so I, I don't think he's really interested in the sin itself. I think he's interested in your company. I think he's interested in knowing you and being with you. I want to read verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. This is the truth that meets the lie, at least in my life, the one that the enemy tells me a lot of, if you're, if you're known, you won't be loved. No, this is the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son purifies us from all sin. What if we lived out of that? The purifi- purification of sin helps us walk in light and fellowship and relationship. What if we operate out of that? We would come close to Jesus 
And then as a result, we would come close to others. And this is what it means to live out of truth. And this, to me, is what God is longing for in our lives. He's not trying to make us squeaky clean and make us all shiny so that we're not so ugly. He's trying to make a way for you and I to be, have an intimate relationship with him and others. What a beautiful thing. So I would encourage you this morning to come close to Jesus. Come close to him. And if he's saying to you right now, where are you? I pray that you would, that we would go, I want you. I don't want my, I don't want darkness. I want you. I want to be seen and I want to be known. And church, I, I, I don't want to say I promise you. Scripture promises you that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin And as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him and we have fellowship with one another. That is a promise that flies directly in the face of what the enemy tries to sell us every day. And I don't want to believe it. The gospel works. (laughs) He really does cleanse us. We really are forgiven. Our sins really do get washed away. There really is no sin too great. (laughs) that he hasn't paid for. And to think that there's corners of our heart that he wouldn't long to meet us in is uh, it's evil. It's evil and it's wicked. And I believe God wants to meet you there. I want to end with one last thought. Uh, and it's a thought about this story that's always kind of got me going. And I know I've said this before in a sermon too, but I just really think it's, it's gripping to, uh, of God's character. Is that you ever, have you ever noticed? Okay, I, I always thought that it was silly, teenage me, that God let the enemy speak at all in this story. Why didn't God just silence the serpent? <laughs> Why did he let the serpent say those lies? Uh, fast forward to today. God doesn't seem to silence the lies in my life as much as I'd like to think, as, as much as I'd want. He seems to be okay with letting the enemy say his piece. Here's why I think that's true. is because the truth is so great when they're compared side by side that lies, the lies the enemy says are so laughable. Have you read the story of the crucifixion? <laughs> have, you, have you heard the lengths that God went to to reconcile us? And then for me to hear a lie like, you won't be loved if you're known, is hilariously, hilariously tiny in comparison to the truth. And so it seems as though God is quite confident in letting the enemy say his peace. And go ahead, say what you have to say. He's not insecure. <laughs> about how truthful the truth is and about how powerful his gospel is to actually set us free about how true scripture really is. So here's what I think true power is. True power on God's behalf is to go, say your peace, enemy, and then watch my children believe me instead of you. That's power. Not don't, don't distract them because I'm insecure. It's Go ahead. Go ahead. Say what you got to say. I'm also going to say my piece. And I'm going to die for them. And I'm going to draw close. And I'm going to have nothing separate me and them. And let's see who wins.
And you and I have a chance to not make God out to be a liar. You and I have a chance to choose him and draw close to him and show the world how powerful and tangible and, and, how, and how capable it is of reconciling us to God and others it really is by the way that we live and the truth that we operate out of. And to not hide in darkness and to not be proud and to not be arrogant and to not skirt away from the light and to live transparent, full lives and go, look how powerful God is. Look how laughable the enemy's lies are. Yes, the, that's, the, that's the, the opportunity that you and I have. And I think it's amazing that God would stand back and go, door A, darkness. Door B, intimacy with, with me. True purpose, true significance, true security, true love. And I like the fact that, the, that, the, that, that God doesn't silence the enemy as much as I'd like him to. Because sometimes I look at those lies, sometimes I, sometimes I believe it, and I buy what the enemy's selling. But, by the grace of God, and out of his mercy, he uses those lies to highlight his beauty and his magnificence, and to remind me of how saved I really am, and how known and loved I really am. And praise God for that. And so church, this morning, I don't know <clears throat> what corner of your heart uh, you're letting lies perhaps take root, what lies you may be operating out of, what darkness you find convenient, I would implore you to repent of your control of that area. I would, I, would, I would implore you to repent of your affection for darkness and for your affection for secrecy. And instead, relinquish yourself into the mercy and grace of who God is and watch him redeem you and restore you and reconcile you to him and others. It's true. It's powerful. It works. It really works. It's not to say it's not painful. It's not to say it's not challenging. It's not to say that it isn't the most difficult thing perhaps you've ever done in your life. But remember, we don't get to pick the story. We don't get to pick what this life's really about. And God really is coming to rule and reign and be with his people. And Jesus really is the only way to have that be your future and your narrative and where you're going. We don't get to pick. And so I implore you to repent, not just so that your life can be smoother and you can have closer intimate, more close relationships with your friends and have better quiet times. <laughs> so good things. Uh, I implore you because the king is coming. The king is coming to rule and reign and, and establish perfect loving authority again. And uh, we have a choice as to whether to elevate him as king now or to befriend the darkness and buy what the enemy is selling in this life and to be disobedient, distracted, and discouraged and to not believe in the fullness of what God says is the plan and the fullness of how we're supposed to get there. And it's the cross and it's repentance and it's humility and it's letting him into those parts of your heart. So I... I Whatever that looks like for you, maybe it looks like praying now, maybe it looks like being honest in whatever small group you're a part of. But don't wait for that. Don't wait for that. There's so much beauty in it. Father, we thank you for this story and how you, uh, how this was the beginning of you enacting your plan to reconcile us again. Thank you for the death of your son that reconciles us. I thank you that there is nowhere to run or hide. Where can we run? Where can we run from your sight? Where can we escape your gaze? You already know. 
the darkness we think we're living in is not even real anyway. <laughs> you know everything. You already know. So would you give us the humility to admit that you're God and that you know already and that you love us anyway and that you're powerful enough to set us free from that and to draw us close. Father, thank you for your mercy and for your forgiveness. We don't deserve it. But you love us so much that you would do that for us and we're blown away by it. Convict our hearts this morning and I pray that as we continue in this series of going through all of scripture, of learning of this love story that you have for us, would you continue to convict our hearts of the point of the whole story and that's to be close to you. So right now we take a step closer to you in our hearts and say thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you that you've highlighted to us the path of life and righteousness. And we choose it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.